Part Three of A Matter of Importance by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Three. On the way over, in overdrive, Sergeant Madden again dozed a great deal of the time. Sergeants do not fraternize extensively with mere patrolmen, even on assignments. Especially not very senior sergeants, only two years from retirement. Patrolman Willis met with the sergeant's approval, to be sure. Timmy was undoubtedly more competent as a cop, but Timmy would have been in a highly emotional state with his girl on the Cerberus and that ship in the hands of the Hucks. Between naps the sergeant somnolently went over what he knew about the alien race. He'd heard that their thumbs were on the outside of their hands, and with some equivalent of opposable thumbs, if their intelligence was to be of any use to them. They pretty well had to be bipeds, too, and if they weren't warm-blooded they couldn't have the oxygen supply that high-grade brain cells require. There were even certain necessary psychological facts. They had to be capable of learning and of passing on what they learned or they'd never have gotten past an instinctual social system. To pass on acquired knowledge they had to have family units in which teaching was done to the young, at least at the beginning. Schools might have been invented later. Most of all their minds had to work logically to cope with a logically constructed universe. In fact, they had to be very much like humans in almost all significant respects, in order to build up a civilization and develop sciences, and splendidly to invade space just a few centuries before humans found them. But, said Sergeant Madden to himself, I bet they've still got armies and navies. Patrolman Willis looked at him inquiringly, but the sergeant scowled at his own thoughts. Yet. The idea was very likely. When Hucks first encountered humans they bristled with suspicion. They were definitely on the defensive when they learned that humans had been in space longer, much longer than they had, and already occupied planets in almost fifteen percent of the galaxy. Sergeant Madden found his mind obscurely switching to the matter of D-Links. Those characters who act like adolescents, not only while they are kids, but after. They were the permanent major annoyance of the cops, because what they did didn't make sense. Learned books explained why people went D-Link, of course. Mostly it was that they were mildly ambitious to be significant, to matter in some fashion, and didn't have the ability to matter in the only ways they could understand. They wanted to drive themselves to eminence and frantically snatched at chances to make themselves nuisances because they couldn't wait to be important any other way. Sergeant Madden blinked slowly to himself. When humans first took to space a lot of them were after glamour, which is the seeming of importance. His son Timmy was on the cops because he thought it glamorous. Patrolman Willis was probably the same way. Glamour is the offer of importance. An offer of importance is glamour. The sergeant grunted to himself. <sighs> A possible course of action came into his mind. He and Patrolman Willis were on the way to the solar system Cyrene 1432, where Krishnamurti's law said there ought to be something very close to a Terran-type planet in either the third or fourth orbit out from the sun. 
That planet would be inhabited by Hucks, who were very much like humans. They knew of the defeat and forced emigration of their fellow Hucks in other solar systems. They'd hidden from humans, and it must have outraged their pride. So they must be ready to put up a desperate and fanatical fight if they were ever discovered. A squad ship with two cops in it, and a dumpy salvage ship with fifteen more, did not make an impressive force to try to deal with a planetary population which bitterly hated humans. But the cops did not plan conquest. They were neither a fighting rescue expedition nor a punitive one. They were simply cops on assignment to get the semi-freighter Cerberus back in shape to travel on her lawful occasions among the stars and to see that she and her passengers and crew got to the destination for which they'd started. The cop's purpose was essentially routine, and the Hucks couldn't possibly imagine it. Sergeant Madden settled some things in his mind and dozed off again. When the squad ship came out of overdrive and he was awakened by the unpleasantness of breakout, he yawned. He looked on without comment as Patrolman Willis matter-of-factly performed the tricky task of determining the elliptic while a solar system sun was little more than a first-magnitude star. It was wholly improbable that anything like Huck patrol ships would be out so far. It was even more improbable that any kind of detection devices would be in operation. Any approaching ship could travel several times as fast as any signal. Patrolman Willis searched painstakingly. He found a planet which was a mere frozen lump of matter in vastness. It was white from a layer of frozen gases piled upon its more solid core. He made observations. "'I can find it again, sir, to meet the Aldeb. Orders, sir?' "'Orders?' demanded Sergeant Madden. "'What?' "'Oh, uh, head in toward the sun.' The Hawks will be on planet three or four, most likely, and that's where they'll have the Cerberus. The squad ship continued sunward, while Patrolman Willis continued his observations. A star picture along the ecliptic, an hour's run on interplanetary drive, no overdrive field in use. Another picture. The two prints had only to be compared with a blinker for planets to stick out like sore thumbs as contrasted with stars that showed no parallax. Cyrene 1, the innermost planet, was plainly close to a transit. 2 was away on the far side of its orbit. 3 was also on far side. 4 was in quadrature. There was the usual gap where 5 should have been. 6, it didn't matter. They'd passed 8 a little while since, a ball of stone with a frigid gas ice covering. Patrolman Willis worked painstakingly with amplifiers on what oddments could be picked up in space. "'It's four, sir,' he reported unnecessarily, because the sergeant had watched as he worked. "'They've got detectors out. I could just barely pick up the pulses. But by the time they've been reflected back they'll be way below thermal noise volume. I don't think even multiples could pick them out.' I'm saying, sir, that I don't think they can detect us at this distance." Sergeant Madden grunted. "'Do you think we came this far not to be noticed?' he asked. But he was not peevish. 
Rather, he seemed more thoroughly awake than he'd been since the squad ship left the precinct substation back on Varenga Four. He rubbed his hands a little and stood up. Hold it a minute, Willis. He went back to the auxiliary equipment locker. He returned to his seat beside Patrolman Willis. He opened the breech of the ejector tube beside his chair. You've had street-fighting training, he said almost affably, at the police academy. And siege of criminal courses, too, eh? He did not wait for an answer. It's historic, he observed. That since time began, cops have been sticking out hats for crooks to shoot at, and that crooks have been shooting thinking there were heads in them. He put a small object in the ejector tube, poked it to proper seating, and settled himself comfortably again. "'Can you make it about a quarter million miles of four? he asked cheerfully, in one hop. Patrolman Willis set up the hop-timer. Sergeant Madden was pleased that he aimed the squad ship not exactly at the minute disk which was planted for of this system. It was prudence against the possibility of an error in the reading of distance. "'Ever use a marker, Willis?' Patrolman Willis said, "'No, sir.' Before he's finished saying it, the squad ship had hopped into overdrive and out again. Sergeant Madden approved of the job. His son Timmy couldn't have done better. Here was Planet Four before them, a little off to one side, as was proper. They had run no risk of hitting in overdrive. The distance was just about a quarter million miles. If Krishnamurti's law predicting the size and distance of planets in a salt-type system was reliable. The world was green and had ice caps. There should always be, in a system of this kind, at least one oxygen planet with a nearly Terran normal range of temperature. That usually meant green plants and an ocean or two. There wasn't quite as much sea as usual on this planet, and therefore there were some extensive yellow areas that must be desert. But it was a good, habitable world. Anybody whose home it was would defend it fiercely. "'Hmm,' said Sergeant Madden. He took the ejector tube lanyard in his hand. He computed mentally. About a quarter million miles, say, a second and a half to alarm down below. Five seconds more to verification, another five to believe it. Not less than twenty altogether to report and get authority to fire. The Hucks were a fighting race and presumably organized, so they'd have a chain of command and decision would be made at the top army stuff or navy. Not like the cops, where everybody knew both the immediate and final purposes of any operation in progress, and could act without waiting for orders. It should be not less than thirty seconds before a firing key made contact down below. As a matter of history, years ago the Hucks had used eighty-gravity rockets with tracking heads and bus bombs on them. These Hucks would hardly be behind the others in equipment. And back then, too, Hucks kept their rocket missiles out in orbit where they could flare into 80G acceleration without wasting time getting out to where an enemy was. In their struggle against the cops two generations ago, the Hucks had had to learn that fighting wasn't all drama and heroics. The cops had taken the glamour out when they won. So the Hucks wouldn't waste time making fine gestures now. 
the squad ship had appeared off their planet it had not transmitted a code identification signal the instant it came out of overdrive the hucks were hiding from the cops so they'd shoot hop on past commanded sergeant madden the instant i jerked the ejector lanyard don't fool around over the pole will do patrolman willis set the hop timer twenty seconds twenty two three four hop said sergeant madden as he spoke he jerked the lanyard before the syllable was finished patrolman willis pressed hard on the overdrive button there came the always nauseating sensation of going into overdrive combined with the even more unpleasant sensation of coming out of it the squad ship was somewhere else a vast curving whiteness hung catacornered in the sky it was the planet's ice cap upside down patrolman willis had possibly cut it a trifle too fine right said the sergeant comfortably now swing about to go back and meet the aldeb but wait the stars and the monstrous white bowl reeled in their positions as the ship turned sergeant madden felt that he could spare seconds here he ignored the polar regions of cyrene four hanging upside down to rearward from the squad ship even a planetary alarm wouldn't get polar area observers set to fire in much less than forty seconds, and there'd have to be some lag in response to instrument reports. It wouldn't be as if trouble had been anticipated at just this time. The squad ship steadied. Sergeant Madden looked with pleasurable anticipation back to where the ship had come out of overdrive and lingered for twenty-four seconds. Willis had moved the squad ship from that position, but the sergeant had left a substitute. The small object he dropped from the ejector tube now swelled and writhed and struggled. In pure emptiness a shape of metal foil inflated itself. It was surprisingly large, almost the size of a squad ship, but in emptiness the fraction of a cubic inch of normal pressure gas would inflate a foil bag against no resistance at all this flimsy shape even jerked into motion released gas poured out its back there was no resistance to acceleration save mass which was negligible a sudden swirling cloud of vapor appeared where the squad ship substitute went mindlessly on its way the vapor rushed toward the space marker. A star appeared. It was a strictly temporary star, but even from a quarter-million-mile distance it was incredibly bright. It was a bomb, blasting a metal foil flimsy which the electronic brain of a missile rocket could only perceive as an unidentified and hence enemy object. Bomb and rocket and flimsy metal foil turned together to radioactive metal vapor. Sergeant Madden knew professional admiration. Thirty-four seconds, he said approvingly. The Hawks could not have expected the appearance of an enemy just here and now. It was the first such appearance in all the planet's history. They certainly looked for no consequences of the seizure of the Cerberus, carefully managed as that had been. 
So, to detonate a bomb against an unexpected inimical object within thirty-four seconds after its appearance was very good work indeed. Hmm, said Sergeant Madden. We've nothing more to do right now, Willis. We'll go back to that hunk of ice you spotted coming in and wait for the Aldeb. Patrolman Willis obediently set the hop-timer and swung the squad ship to a proper aiming. He pressed the overdrive button. His manner, like that of Sergeant Madden, was the manner of someone conducting a perfectly routine operation. "'If my son Timmy were with me on this job,' said Sergeant Madden, "'I'd point out the inner meaning of the way we're going about handling it.' He reposed in his bucket seat in the squad ship, which at that moment lay aground not quite right side up, close to the north side of Cyrene 8. The local sun was not in view. The squad ship's ports opened upon the incredible brilliance of the galaxy as seen out of atmosphere. There was no atmosphere here. It was all frozen. But there was a horizon, and the light of the stars showed the miniature jungle of gas crystals. Frozen gases, frozen to gas ice, they were feathery. They were lacy, they were infinitely delicate. They were frost in three dimensions. "'Yes, sir,' said Patrolman Willis. "'The Aldebs do soon,' said Sergeant Madden. "'So I'll make it short. "'The whole thing is that we are cops, and the Hucks are soldiers. "'Which means that they're after feeling important, after glamour. "'Every one of them figures it's necessary to be important. "'He craves it.' Patrolman Willis listened. He had a proximity detector out which would pick up any radiation caused by the cutting of magnetic lines of force by any object. It made very tiny whining noises from time to time. If anything from a Huck missile rocket to the salvage ship Aldeb approached, however, the sound would be distinctive. Now that, said Sergeant Madden, is the same thing that makes D-Links. A D-Link tries to matter in the world he lives in. It's a small world, with only him and his close pals in it. So he struts before his pals. He don't realize that anybody but him and his pals are human, see?" "'I know,' said Patrolman Willis, with an edge to his voice. Last month a couple of D-Links set a ground truck running downhill and jumped off it, and—' "'True,' said Sergeant Madden. He rumbled for a moment. A soldier lives in a bigger world he tries to matter in. He's protecting that world and being admired for it. In old, old days his world was maybe a day's march across. Later it got to be continents. They tried to make it planets, but it didn't work. But there's got to be enemies to protect the world against, or a soldier isn't important. He's got no glamour, you see. Yes, sir said Willis. Then there's us cops, said Sergeant Madden wryly. Mostly we join up for the glamour. We think it's important to be a cop. But presently we find we ain't admired. Then there's no more glamour. But we're still important. A cop matters because he protects people against other people that want to do things to him. 
against characters that want to get important by hurting them. Being a cop means you matter against all the delinks and crooks and fools and murderers who'd pull down civilization in a minute if they could, just so they could be important because they did it. But there's no glamour. We're not admired. We just do our job. And if I sound sentimental, I mean it. Yes, sir, said Willis. There's a big picture in the big hall and police headquarters on Valdez Three said the sergeant. It's the story of the cops from the early days when they wore helmets, and the days when they rode bicycles and then drove ground cars. There's not only cops, but civilians in every one of the panels, Willis. And if you look carefully, you'll see that there's one civilian in every panel that's thumbing his nose at a cop. I've noticed, said Willis. Remember it, said Sergeant Madden. It bears on what we've got to do to handle these hucks. Soldiers couldn't do what we've got to. They'd fight to be admired. We can't. It'd spoil our job. We've got to persuade them to behave themselves. Then he frowned as if he were dissatisfied with what he said. He shook his head and made an impatient gesture. No good, he said vexedly. You can't say it. Hmm. I'll nap a while until the Aldeb gets here. He settled back to doze. Patrolman Willis regarded him with an odd expression. They were aground on Cyrene 8, on which no human ship had ever landed before them, and they had stirred up a hornet's nest on Cyrene 4, which had orbital 80G rocket missiles in orbit around it, with bust bomb heads and all the other advantages of civilization. The Aldeb was on the way with a fifteen-man crew, and seventeen men altogether must pit themselves against an embattled planet with all its population ready and perhaps eager for war. Their errand was to secure the release of human prisoners and the surrender of a seized spaceship from a proud and desperate race. It did not look promising. Sergeant Madden did not look like the kind of genius who could carry you through. Dozing with his chin tilted forward on his chest, he looked hopelessly commonplace. The skipper of the Aldab came over to the squad ship because Sergeant Madden loathed spacesuits, and there was no air on Cyrene 8. Trollman Willis watched as the skipper came wading through the lacy, breast-high gas frost. It seemed a pity for such infinitely delicate and beautiful objects to be broken and crushed. The sergeant unlocked the locked door and spoke into a microphone when he heard the skipper stamping on steel lock flooring. "'Brush yourself off,' commanded the sergeant, "'and sweep the stuff outside. Part of it's methane, and there's some ammonia in those crystals.' There was a suitable pause. The outer door closed. The lock filled with air and gas crystal fragments turned to reeking vapor as they warmed. The skipper bled them out and refilled the lock. Then he came inside. He opened his faceplate. Well, there's Hucks here, Sergeant Madden told him. Their hair and a braid and all set to go. They popped off a marker I stuck out for them to shoot at in thirty-four seconds by the clock. Bright boys, these Hucks. They don't wait to ask questions. When they see something, 
They shoot at it. The skipper tilted back his helmet and said beseechingly, Scratch my head, will you? When Patrolman Willis reached out his hand, the skipper revolved his head under it until the itchy place was scratched. Most men itch instantly they are unable to scratch. The skipper's space gloves were sprouting whiskers of moisture frost now. Oh, "'Thanks,' he said gratefully. Uh, "'What are you going to do, sergeant?' "'Open communication with him,' said the sergeant heavily. End of Part 3